While we were marching through Georgia, everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low. The yellow man left for the old left hand, around the ring you go. A grand old right to left walk on your heel and toe. Promenade that pretty gal to Georgia. Alexander Stevens was on the run, fleeing arrest for supporting a failed rebellion. The last battle had been fought and lost, and the government forces were closing in. A warrant for his arrest had been issued. It was somewhere around 1746, and Stevens, a supporter of Bonnie Prince Charlie's attempt to take the English throne by force, had to leave Scotland as soon as possible. Alexander Stevens left the country to take refuge with relatives in Pennsylvania, married, and began a family that would grow to ten children. Some records indicate that he may have fought with George Washington as a captain of the Revolutionary Army. Stevens' family eventually moved to Georgia, and he was made a citizen of that state by the legislature in 1788. They settled in Wilkes County, that's near the site of the Battle of Kettle Creek. The family continued to grow, and in 1812, a grandson was born, also named Alexander Stevens. His story would be the story of the United States as it split into two parts, then reunified. He was there for all of it. Buckle up, we're in for a ride. This is Moving Through Georgia Season 2, Episode 3, Alexander Stevens, Part 1 of 3. Even though Alexander's father was a schoolteacher, Alex himself didn't receive a lot of formal schooling. Due to illness, he only attended school for a few months a year, and not every year. When he was well, he worked the farm and studied the Bible by the fire at night. His father died when Alexander was 14, and it was hard on him. Decades later, he would still write about it as if it had just happened. His stepmother died not long after, and the children were broken up to be raised by various relatives. Alexander got lucky. The uncle who raised him had an extensive library and sent him to school at age 14. Alexander was still in somewhat fragile health, and his brother left school to run the farm and allow Alex to continue his studies. He entered Franklin College, which was soon to be the University of Georgia, when he was 16 and a half, and he graduated in 1831. He described his college years as unclouded, prosperous, and happy. I got the story of Stevens' early years from an article in the Georgia Historical Quarterly that was written by Stevens' grandnephew, someone who had a long and podcast-worthy history himself, but we're just going to do Alexander Stevens now. As to Stevens' character, he was bright and ambitious. In his own diary, he notes, Today I feel the ragings of ambition like the sudden burst of the long-smothered flames of a volcano. He had drive and a will, and these things would come together to make him an integral part of those events that led up to the Civil War. He passed the bar and began practicing law in Crawfordville, Georgia. He grew fairly wealthy and respected and served in both houses of the state legislature. In 1843, he began his career in the United States House of Representatives. He was elected as part of the Whig Party. 
The Whigs were the second major political party at the time, after the Democrats, but they wouldn't last too much longer. By the start of the Civil War, the Whig Party will have mostly faded away. Alexander Stevens' political career really kicked into high gear with the Mexican-American War, which began with the annexation of Texas. Before the fighting even ended, the U.S. knew that they were going to have a lot of new territory to deal with at the end of the war, and the question was specifically whether those territories would permit slavery. That was on every congressman's mind. A lot of different ideas were put out there. One proposal was to extend the Mason-Dixon line to the Pacific, and since a lot of that new territory would have been below that line, it was not a very popular idea. At one point, a bill came up banning slavery in any new Western territories, and that was vigorously opposed by Stevens and the Whig Party. One idea to settle the argument was called the Clayton Compromise, and it would have allowed Oregon's current anti-slavery laws to stand and left the issue of slavery in the Southwest to the Supreme Court. This compromise passed in the Senate, but Stevens tabled the bill in the House. Robert Toombs, who was Stevens' good friend, was in favor of the bill, but Stevens felt the issue of slavery was not to be addressed by the federal government and he would not support the question of slavery in the Southwest being settled in Washington, D.C. However, a lot of Southerners were in favor of this compromise, and many believed it was the way to avoid secession and a possible civil war. Francis Cone, a justice of the Georgia Supreme Court, denounced Stevens and declared that killing the bill was treason against the South. The two argued back and forth until September of 1848 when Cone confronted Stevens outside a hotel in Atlanta. Stevens swung his walking stick and hit Cone in the face, and Cone pulled a knife and stabbed Stevens six times. Remember, we're talking about a senator and a justice of the Georgia Supreme Court. Stevens recovered and he declined to press charges. Cone pled guilty to a lesser charge and was fined $800. The bill to ban slavery in the West was never brought to a vote. The issue of slavery in the New Territories was finally settled in the Compromise of 1850. This was five separate bills. Texas surrendered some land that would become New Mexico, Utah, and parts of other states, and in return, the federal government would assume that state's debt. California would be admitted as a free state, and the people of the remaining territories would vote on the issue of slavery. The Fugitive Slave Act of 1793 was strengthened, enough that it would require a federal officer to arrest a suspected runaway slave even in a free state. Officers who did not arrest someone who was suspected to be a runaway slave could be fined, and those who fed or sheltered a fugitive could be imprisoned. The slave trade was abolished in Washington, D.C., but slave ownership or purchasing slaves in neighboring states wasn't. This was the best the politicians could come up with, and it was their last best hope to avert secession. We discussed the Compromise of 1850 in the Robert Toombs episode. Toombs, Stevens, and Huell Cobb created the Georgia Platform, a policy that they hoped would preserve the Union and satisfy those calling for secession. 
They basically said that Georgia would accept the compromise as long as the additions to the Fugitive Slave Act were honored and the North would not try to ban slavery in new territories and states. And they explicitly state that failure by the North to abide by this policy would lead to secession. This is important because in just a few years, two new territories, Kansas and Nebraska, would apply for statehood. Kansas and Nebraska both lay north of that hypothetical Mason-Dixon line if it extended into the west, but the Georgia platform demanded that popular sovereignty decide the question of slavery. There was a bill put out called the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and if it passed, it would reopen the debate over slavery in all the western territories and states. There, in the U.S. House of Representatives, Stevens' political maneuvering got the bill out of committee and up for a vote. It wasn't easy. There were insults, there was screaming, and there are stories that some representatives even brought weapons to the vote to protect themselves. The bill passed by a fairly slim margin and opened a chapter in American history known as Bleeding Kansas over the violence that later took place in the area as people who supported slavery moved in and people who opposed slavery moved in. Stevens was elated. He wrote, I feel as if the mission of my life was performed. You still think that partisan fighting, insults, threats of violence, and Calls for treason began in the 21st century? We've been dealing with this for a long time. A few years pass. Now it's 1856 and the party structure in the United States had changed. This time the presidential candidates were James Buchanan for the Democrats and Millard Fillmore for the American Party, which was also called the Know-Nothing Party. Stevens backed Buchanan, the Democrat, who tended more towards states' rights and possibly even secession, while another former Whig, who was named Benjamin Hill, campaigned in Georgia for Fillmore and the American Party. At some point, it was agreed that Stevens and Hill would hold a debate over the merits of their individual candidates, and the two met in Oglethorpe County. For five hours, each accused the other of being a traitor and a liar and of distorting the facts. According to an article by our old pal E. Merton Coulter, each side praised their debater as the winner and crowed over how much they trounced their opponent. The debate, and a lot of animosity, continued in a series of letters between Stevens and Hill, in which they continued to accuse each other of being a Judas to their country leading to Stevens calling for that satisfaction which is usual between gentlemen on such occasions. Yeah, a duel. Actually, this was Stevens' third invitation to a duel. He had previously called out two others who had argued with him about the Mexican War. The letter containing the challenge was brought to Hill, who wrote a reply listing some reasons why he would not duel. Hill said that he could not abide being a murderer if he were to win, and he didn't feel that the animosity between them merited a solution that extreme. And then he closed with some words that Stevens probably took as a pretty serious diss. He said that Stevens shouldn't extend this sort of invitation if he didn't mean it. This wouldn't be one of those show duels in which each man shot wide and then called for reconciliation. If he were called out to duel, 
Hill would duel to the best of his abilities. That was not what Stevens wanted to hear. He wrote a letter to an Augusta paper calling Hill a coward, a liar, and a despicable poltroon. That's another word for coward. Hill wrote back and said dueling didn't determine who was right and who was wrong, and besides, was illegal in their home state. Eventually, politics and necessity would win out as the greater issues facing the country sort of dwarfed and buried the smaller issues facing Hill and Stevens. The events building up to the war were bigger than their personal differences. So here we are. It's about 1860. Abraham Lincoln is about to be inaugurated President of the United States, and pretty soon a convention will be called in Georgia to debate secession from the Union. At this point, Stevens is still a strong supporter of maintaining that union. He writes his opinion in an 1860 speech, which is oddly enough entitled Assertions of a Secessionist. However, he says, If we can, without the loss of power or any essential right or interest, remain in the union, it is our duty to ourselves and to posterity to do so. I want to thank you for listening, and I want to remind you that Moving Through Georgia is a podcast of Georgia history focusing on Northeast Georgia. If you have any questions or comments, please send them to movingthroughgeorgia at gmail.com. So how does a Union supporter end up in the government of the Confederacy? Well, part of the answer might be those ragings of ambition that he wrote about. We'll discuss this more in part two. The war. That's the way we do it down in Georgia. Everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low. The yellow man left for the old left hand around the ring you go. A grand old right left walk on your heel and toe. From an aid deputy gal to Georgia. That's all.